Blackwater, the Wagner Group, Executive Outcomes, the Flying Tigers, the Swiss Guard, the White Company, the Knights Templar, the Varangian Guard, Clerkus of Sparta, Pythagoras the Spartan, Mentor of Rhodes, and Socrates of Achaea. The list is endless. Mercenaries, guns for hire, soldiers of fortune, private military companies, private security contractors, dirty deeds done not so dirt cheap. History is replete with privatized militaries. Call them what you want. They've been around for a very long time and they are very likely not going away anytime soon. So you better get used to it, grow up and accept it or move to another planet. Because in this world, folks, money trumps everything. And like it or not, wars are good for business. And pandemics? As if the only pandemic being hyped is an actual thing. Folks, the only thing hurting anyone is the pandemic of the ignorant, the gullible, and the blindly obedient. History tells us that more people are enslaved and killed by such means of oppression and tyranny than by any other means. Oppression and tyranny, folks, money, profits and propaganda, call it psychological operations or call it psychological conditioning, you are being gaslit. So remove your blinders, all of them, and take a good sensory inventory of what you're being told and shown to believe. Because here we go. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Oconus, The Contractor's Life. Talking from the relatively insulated and bucolic rural foothills of Northwestern Washington State, I'm your host, Scott Dresser. Life as a private security contractor in a hostile or a war-torn zone. It is a mixed bag of blessings. Some good not so good. All in all though, private security contracting is much the same as life. It is what you make it. The Middle East? Well, lands of enchantment, lands of mystery, lands of the ancient ones. Myths? Legends? Folklore? Maybe. If you believe what you read in the ancient and the holy texts, then you know that it all centered around what we refer to as the MENA region, or the Middle East North Africa region. Yep, the Mediterranean. So, life as a private security contractor, OCONUS, or overseas. Well, those who've been there understand that it's not dissimilar from perhaps your military service. Uh, it's not the same, obviously, and most times, usually most times, um, it, it's quite different. Uh, again, because the mission, if you will, of a private security contractor is not an offensive one. Uh, it's a defensive one. Kind of like uh, close protection, a bodyguard, uh, a PSD team, whatever. Uh, that's, again, and I've said this before, it's not that they can't sometimes look like an offensive operation when you get into a firefight, if that happens. But most times, you're looking to avoid it. You're looking to get around it. Okay, go under it, go over it, whatever. 
Uh, usually you don't want to go through it. You're trying to stay away from that, okay? So calling it diffusing or whatever you want, okay, mitigating, okay, we're just trying to avoid that. But that's not the mission of a private security contractor. What you're probably thinking, if you've not been a private security contractor, is you're probably thinking, based on the stuff that you've seen, read, and heard, okay, but it's mostly what we call mercenaries, okay? And mercenaries, quite often, if not almost always, or always, uh, get into an offensive type thing. Uh, that's, you know, call it a private military company, a privately hired army, whatever you want. But that's usually mercenaries, and, and a lot of countries have on their books a mercenary law. Not all of them, but a lot of them do. And in the Middle East, uh, they also have uh, mercenary laws. Um, so if you go there, if you can't quite make the distinction, the best I can tell you is that mercenaries primarily are offensive. Private security contractors primarily are defensive. It's the best way I can explain it to you. Uh, so if you've heard otherwise, you're either hearing it second or third hand or someone's probably fibbing or lying to you. So what's it like? Well, as I've stated before, in addition to, at least for me, <laughs> the almost excruciatingly long transatlantic flights, which uh, morphed over the years because uh, originally it was basically a west to east type flight, slightly invading Canada on the flight over and, you know, not not and you could almost kind of see Greenland uh, from the windows as we're flying. And then, it, you know, that changed and we then went quite a bit further into Canada uh, touching or, or just passing Greenland. And then ultimately, toward the end, the last couple or few years, things changed dramatically. And it was almost like a polar flight. It's like, what the heck? I mean, what, even just going down, um, I'm not sure how far into it, but Russia at that point. Uh, now, some might have argued, said, well, you're actually going through uh, Ukraine. Okay, whatever. Uh, but you could see the continental shelf ice right there coming up against the continent that was pretty cool i mean you could see it and then you could see the fractures and and occasionally you'd see the small towns way the heck out there with the lights because that you everywhere you looked all you saw was snow 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 white it was completely white i mean for as far as the eye could see and then once in a while you'd see these these lights out there it's like wow that was pretty cool so um without digressing too much so in, a, in addition like i said to for me the the excruciatingly long transatlantic flights I mean, you know, yeah, you're working there six, seven days a week, uh, 12, 16, 18, maybe 20-hour days, okay? And you're doing that, again, depending on the contract, uh, two to four months at a time, and then you go home for a month or two at a time. Um, sometimes it can be longer than that. There are, there are contracts out there where after you've done a certain bit, I don't know if it's six months or a year, but they're different, where you can go in for three to six months and go home for three to six months and then come back for three to six months and then go home for three to six months. Um, and I was on a, a couple like that, um, and, and they're kind of cool. And so, but you, you get that downtime, that decompression time, okay? So yeah, you're, you're working some long hours, and it, it may be, for some people, it sounds... Uh, glamorous. It's really not. Um, 
it's it's a lot of drudgery <laughs> uh, and but you do when you get back you've got that downtime get that decompression time and I learned to try uh, and take an extra day or two on my way back so that I wasn't completely wore out when I got home or met my wife at the airport um, I know guys that would take a week they'd stay in a hotel um, in in a so-called friendly country uh, up to up to five or seven days before going home so that they could decompress before they got home um, but you know and most of the time I decompressed when I got home because the wife and the family you know, they wanted to see me and they wanted every day that they could, understandably so. Uh, but life as a private security contractor, you know, it, it's, you've got all these factors and variables that go into it that most people don't see, hear, or read about. They aren't shown. Um, you're exposed to many of the same things that the people who live there are exposed to. Um, and sometimes, um, again, you're not, the mission is not the same. You're not doing the same thing as the military counterparts, but you frequently or can frequently be exposed to the same sorts of things. Um, the elements and, and the, the destruction, the, the death, the carnage, uh, and, you, you know, and you're taking it all in because you see it, you hear it, you smell it sometimes, and sometimes you really smell it a lot. Um, yeah, uh, and I remember the first time that that hit me full force. Um, it was, uh, it was in Kuwait and then the second one was at, uh, VBC or what you call victory base complex, a, uh, series of bases and fobs and camps that had been conjoined and, uh, mostly surrounded by <coughs> walls or whatever you want to call it. Uh, but yeah, the first time I, I saw that. Uh, that it kind of hit me was there in Kuwait, and I don't remember how or why I was there, but I, I guess I was driving around uh, one of the, you know, going from wherever I was to the other place. But I remember looking up at the buildings <coughs> uh, on one side of the road uh, it, and noticing a lot of damage to these buildings. And I was like, I mean, you could see uh, holes. I mean, just... A, just almost an endless number of holes in a lot of these buildings uh, that was on one side of the highway. And on the other side of the highway, the, the, the side nearest the water, uh, you didn't see that. So there was a, a division, if you will. And, and, and it struck me as like, man, to this day, they haven't fixed that stuff. I mean... You could, I mean, some of it looked like uh, holes that were made from uh, tank rounds uh, or RPGs, and others were smaller, like small arms fire and whatnot. And then the the various uh, uh, damage from from debris. And I remember asking somebody about that, and I think I heard it a few times when I was there uh, in other discussions. But uh, it, it, they likened it to the similarity of the highway of death that was still there in Kuwait. Uh, a lot of people didn't talk about it, but, you know, if it came up, but they likened it to that, that it was a constant reminder to them. The reason they kept it was a constant reminder of the effects of an invasion and war and, you know, uh, just a reminder. Uh, and others, <laughs> and maybe it's true, I don't know, said that they that stuff remained because it was in that part of Kuwait where nobody cared. <laughs> so, 
So uh, which one is the correct story? Who knows? But yeah, I mean, it was amazing. The Highway of Death, if you remember that from the first Gulf War, the images of that, <clears throat> it was still there when I was there. And I and I took pictures of it. It, it was absolutely fascinating. That it was still there. You could still see uh, mostly the rusting hulks, the derelict vehicles and other devices that were out there that they had just pushed off to the side of the road, probably, uh, I don't know, 50 or 100 feet out, but they were still there and for miles of it. And so, yeah, so, I mean, I think it's still there in Kuwait. If you've been there uh, here recently, you, you, you probably know what I'm talking about, if it's still there. I, I, if they hadn't fixed it by 2007, the, the buildings and, and, and all the pockmarks in it uh, from the Iraqi invasion <coughs> during the first Gulf War, my guess is that they still haven't. It's still there. Uh, but then, then the second time that it kind of hit me was my first time in Iraq. And we were, I was in a tower with a fellow uh, at VBC or Victory Base Complex. And we were, it was right on the edge of this wall. Uh, we could see Bayap or Baghdad International Airport from where we were. And there was this parapet, a narrow rectangular shaped parapet, if you will. And uh, to one side, the right side of it, um, I was there with my machine gun, and he was at the other end with his machine gun, and, and I don't know, 240s or M60s, maybe one was the 240 and the other was the M60. As I recollect, I had the, the uh, M60. But we were, we were looking out this one day and just kind of scanning during some downtime, uh, and it just hit me, the utter destruction that we could see just looking from there, uh, and not that far from us. And people, you know, but and perhaps most amazingly is that life went on. People were out there walking around, driving as if nothing had happened. But just the utter destruction that people were living in and amongst. Um, so whether it was normal for them at that point, they just gotten used to it. I don't know. But something just struck a chord with me when I saw that. It's like, Wow. And, of course, I saw a whole lot more of that um, throughout Iraq and, and Afghanistan. And it, it's just, it's amazing the utter destruction, the death toll that was taken during that, what we called, and I guess still to this day, we call it a liberation. And, and you know, probably rightly so. I mean, we did officially uh, hand the country over to the Iraqis in 2005 officially. Uh, and so as a private security contractor, I mean, you are exposed to a lot of stuff and a lot of the same potential risks and dangers. I mean, it was not an uncommon thing, depending, again, where you were, uh, to have incoming mortar rounds or r incoming rocket fire. Um, and believe it or not, even hand grenades, <laughs> sometimes you get that close, folks. Um, and of course, you know, the, the small arms fire, um, and sometimes the heavy weapons. But, you know, and, and you learn to sleep through it. It's kind of like the person is, you know, the, you know, when you see it in the movies, uh, in the downtown Bronx area of New York, whoever, and the, and the subway or the train goes flying by the apartment at midnight and they don't wake up, you know. Uh, so I guess, you know, whether you get used to it or you acclimate to it um, or you just realize that 
you know, this is my world now. This is, you know, when I go, this is my job. When I go to work and I still got to sleep, you figure out a way to do it. Um, a lot of us, I know I did, found God pretty quick. Uh, that was my biggest console um, along with my wife. Uh, I mean, and, and that's something else that I think a lot of times gets overlooked um, in the world of private security contracting is the support system back home, uh, whether it's your wife or if you're a woman, then your husband or your boyfriend, girlfriend, your family, whatever. Uh, that support system back home, and it doesn't always, and it doesn't necessarily have to be uh, that they're sending you stuff, you know, to remind you of home. Um, but just knowing that they're there, and you have those phone calls, the Skype calls, the whatever, uh, and so, you know, <laughs> just private security contracting is not probably quite probably not what most people think it is and one of the takeaways from all that um this you know a lot of stuff that hasn't been talked about yet but one of the takeaways is that you realize when you come through it and you're and, and you made it through whether you did it for one year or 10 years or however long you did it um not dissimilar to the guys in the military where you say you realize you made it and you realize as well that there's probably not much you can't do if you want to. As well, you, you kind of tend to look at security in the United States wholly differently than when you did prior to going over there or going outside your country uh, to go to a hostile war-torn zone. Okay, Once you've spent some time there, not in the military, but I'm talking about security uh, at whatever level you're doing it. You do it long enough, and when you get home, you just like, <laughs> security here in America? Um, I'm not going to, you know, throw too many towels in, in, in that one, but uh, you know what I'm saying. It, 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 you, you look at it, it's a wholly different thing, and I'm not quite sure I can articulate it properly, but you realize that most, if not everything, that you thought was the gospel truth and, and you thought the people were this and that, you realize, oh man, wow. <laughs> what is This could be a comedy show at most places. And I found that to be the case. Uh, so am I trying to say that we're better than them? Uh, technically and proficiently, probably, yeah. But beyond that, no. I'm just saying that it, once you get outside that big bubble-wrapped world of yours, and you're out there way off the beaten postcard path, okay, you realize, you realize things are not the way they've been portrayed. And most everything you thought, you now think of differently. You see it differently. You hear it differently. Because it has changed. You, you've been enlightened, if you will. You've grown up. Whatever you want to call it. Okay, a good example is, let's say you're driving down a road or a highway, whether it's in town, on the outskirts of town, or out in the middle of nowhere. And here in America, if you saw um, some police on the side of the road or whatever, you wouldn't think anything of it. You might slow down and, you know, because so, you don't want to hit them, whatever. You're, but, you know, you wouldn't think much of it. Just keep on going. But out there, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it, you learn pretty quickly that that's not necessarily a good sign. So, uh, you know, just think you look at things differently um, and you realize that everything 
or certainly most things, are not what you used to think they were, and, and you don't take them for granted anymore. At least not the same granted you used to have. So, you know, the other aspects of private security contracting uh, is, you know, when you wake up, your uniform is not what it used to be. Okay, so instead of putting on your blue jeans and your flip-flops and throwing on a t-shirt and taking your loosely tied backpack and throwing it over one shoulder and jumping in your car and driving to work, listening to your, the radio, your favorite music and this, that, one thing, another, and, and going and have your latte at work, um, your work day is you're putting on a different kind of uniform. Again, depending on the contract, it might be blue jeans and a t-shirt. It might be 5'11s, Okay. Um, as for footwear, you know, that runs the gamut. Um, you, can, you can wear the Gucci stuff or not. But uh, you learn pretty quickly that sometimes price is an indicator of quality. And you're, you're okay with parting with that money because it makes a huge difference, whether it's your sunglasses or your footwear or the gloves. And uh, I wore gloves a lot, um, usually for pr very practical reasons. Uh, probably actually all the practical reasons, everything from sun to the dust, to the heat, to just, you know, it's like, Ooh, what the hell was that that I just touched? <laughs> okay. So, um, you know, uh, you might be lugging nothing more than your sidearm and, or maybe, uh, the rifle that you're carrying and, and some magazines for it. Uh, but usually you've also got plates, uh, wearing, you're usually wearing a plate carrier that has plates in it. Uh, and sometimes Kevlar, uh, sometimes one or the other or both. So, I mean, your, your workday is completely different. Uh, and, and your, and your mindset, at least it should be, you know, that we're not, in, we're not in our backyard anymore. Okay. We're not in the hood anymore. Okay, this is a war zone or it's a hostile place. Uh, we're in an area where probably many to most don't want us here. And so you say, okay, well, that's fine. That's all fine and dandy. But what about what do you do when you're not working? Well, what do I do? Where did I go? It depended on where I was working uh, and how long my day was. And like just like here at home, depends on how you feel. Um, so, you know, some, some guys would read a book in their downtime, their off time when they're not working. Some guys would watch a movie. Some would play a game, board game or a video game or a combination of, it just depended. Um, you know, listen to music, download something, you know, you're, you're talking with your family or friends back home. Uh, maybe you go somewhere on base if the base is large enough, uh, for coffee or pizza or a sandwich, or Pete, you know, whatever. Um, again, it depended on where you were and what was available. You know, and what you did, I mean, it, it varied as much as people vary. But there were some commonalities. I mean, there wasn't... Some of the bigger bases, uh, for whatever reason, it's coming to mind, like JBAD, for example, uh, there were... Yeah, I wouldn't call them places to go, but there were things you there were places you could go, things you could do in your downtime if you wanted to socialize and, and be around other people and just chill out and relax and kick your feet up. And uh I wouldn't say I mean not 
you don't forget what's going on, but, you know, give you a chance to just kind of decompress and, and feel like a normal human again. Um, <clears throat> so, so there were places where, you know, depending on where you were, again, dictated to some extent what you could and couldn't do. Uh, and sometimes where I would, you know, like, for example, uh, at uh, Bagram uh, when I was there in Afghanistan, uh, it was not an uncommon thing during my downtime or when I didn't have to be 100% attentive to just look around at the mountains and gaze up in the sky um, at the at the occasional jets that uh, usually uh, civilian airliners uh, flying over. Um, so again, you know what you did in your downtime, it just varied as much as people vary. Uh, some and maybe cultural differences too. I know that uh, you know you, you'd go to the gym, you'd work out if they had if they had such a place. Um, you know, and there were places of congregation. And what I mean by that is where, uh, people would gather, uh, <clears throat> to socialize and whether, and sometimes you had to compete with all the background noise because the TV and the radio and, you know, it could get kind of boisterous at times. Uh, but you know, sometimes there's a lot of steam to let off and rather better to do it in a healthy manner like that, I guess, because <laughs> there's a lot of other unhealthy things you could do, but you know, and there would be sports competitions, uh, for example, uh, they're out in uh, Kabul province, uh, uh, the, the camp, uh, I, I'm having a brain fart, I don't remember the camp name right now, but it was on a big, it was a big Afghan military base that the Russians had had uh, prior to them leaving Afghanistan. And uh, there would be, uh, the Afghans loved playing soccer. Uh, I guess they still do. Uh, it, it, it's called a national sport, um, but they frequently would have, um, you know, f- healthy, friendly, intramural competitions amongst the different groups of people out there, uh, the various companies and units and whatnot. Uh, so we, you know, go watch a soccer match, um, get out and go hike up in the hills, uh, you know, and just look around. So. It, what you did in your downtime, again, it just depended on the person. Uh, you know, there were probably some people that really kept to themselves. Uh, you kind of noticed that. Uh, so, again, the variety, it's just like people. It, you know, everybody has something different. And there were people that read books. You know, you'd walk through uh, an office or whatever, or you'd meet somebody, and, and they're, they're reading a book. Uh, so, again, it just depended on the person. And, of course, where you were at. Um, but... Generally speaking, um, there just wasn't a whole lot to do. So, or what there was, was limited. So you learn to make the best of it uh, and just, you know, embrace what there was. Because it could have been worse. Now, you contrast that with, say, Kuwait, uh, which, you know, at that time, uh, and still to this point, uh, was considered uh, basically, I wouldn't call it a, no, a gun-free zone, but uh, there, the, what you could and could not do w- was wholly different. I mean, it's just, you know, it's, it's night and day. Uh, you could go out on the economy, and for the most part, you'd be safe, and, and there was plenty to do. Uh, they had multiple malls you could go to, shopping centers galore, restaurants galore. I mean, just, uh, so... 
what you did there, again, you know, it's not dissimilar for what you do in Iraq or Afghanistan or other places around the world. Um, it, it just, but it, it, it's how you went about doing it and, and you know, it's, you know, the, the level of civility, I guess, is what it comes down to. So, you know, just life as a private security contractor, it, again, it's not for everyone, um, especially when we're talking uh, outside the continental United States or, you know, outside the free world, if you will. So uh, life as a private security contractor, it is. It's a mixed bag of, of blessings. And, uh, you know, if do it again, absolutely. So putting a wrap on this one, I would like to say thank you. To everyone, all of you, for taking time out of your day or evening to listen to me talk about my experiences as a private security contractor, OCONUS, or overseas. Thank you again to Cava Cohen and Colin Perry, and thank you to Andres Rodriguez. Thank you to my wife, my children, and all the folks, male and female, who have been a part of my life and still are. Remember, folks, it takes a team. The grass is not always greener on the other side. Be careful what you wish for. You might just get it. Stay humble, stay safe, and keep others safe by staying frosty. And until next time, keep it real. (laughs) 